We're reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. But to me it is a very small thing that I should be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself, for I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. Let's pray. Father, you you are the one who knows not only the outward deeds and appearances, but you know our hearts, you know our motives. And uh, we are grateful that your word deciphers those for us to some degree, but ultimately those things will all be made clear in time to come. Help us to be very careful about judging others. And we ask that as we uh, gather to, uh, today to study this text, you'd be with Tom, that his words might be uh, bring glory to you and might be edifying to us. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you, Billy. Good morning. It's good to be back. Uh, when I when I started preparing for this message, uh, I had no idea that the inc- the uh, events of this past week would be as they have been. Uh, but those events serve to prove all the more that the lessons of this very powerful passage are critically important uh, to the people of God. But this message is not a response to those events. Now, the teaching and exhortation that Paul sets before us in 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 5, uh, go way beyond, way beyond anything as fleeting as any single event in the history of men and nations, may, uh, no matter how impactful last week may prove to be. This passage is about who is qualified to judge the hearts of men and who isn't qualified. And the short answer in this passage is that God is and we aren't. My title for this message is Stop Judging Motives That You Can't Know. Paul begins chapter 4 by saying that he and his co-workers should be regarded as servants of Christ and as stewards of the mysteries of God. A steward is a person to whom an important task has been entrusted by somebody else. Paul's God-ordained stewardship was to reveal to men the mysteries of God that God had revealed to him. They're no longer mysteries, praise God, for all who hear and believe the word of the cross. Paul already told us in the second chapter of this same letter, that God, by the work of His Holy Spirit through His Word, has unveiled those mysteries to us. Powerful, life-giving, worldview-defining truths 
which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man. All that God has prepared for those who love Him. God has revealed these things to us by the Spirit through the Word. And Paul's commission from God was to act as one of God's messengers in that unveiling. Paul was the steward of the mysteries of God. Here in chapter 4, verse 2, Paul says, "In, In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. Every person who bears the gospel of Jesus Christ on this earth is required by God to live in a manner that that adorns rather than contradicts the message that he or she bears. The glorious message of the gospel. We are to display Christ in our behavior as we proclaim Christ with our words. It's never just one or the other. Never. It's always both. But Paul is not talking here only about audible words and visible actions. In fact, his focus in this passage is on the faithfulness and rightness of the invisible motives of his own heart and of the hearts of everyone who is called as a servant of Christ. And that's all of us who know Christ and everybody worldwide who belongs to Christ. Paul affirms that God requires of his stewards that they be found faithful, trustworthy, not only in our actions, but in our innermost hearts. That's a high standard. Motives matter to God. The word motives refers to that which drives our behavior, that in the inner man that drives the outer behavior. It refers to the thoughts and intentions of a man. In Philippians 1, Paul speaks of some who shared the same stewardship that he had been given, essentially, and that is the stewardship of the gospel, but who, quote, proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives. Sadly, <laughs> there have been many men and women who fit that description in our era. And... Amazingly, they seem to have no trouble filling churches to the brim. Men and women for whom the gospel are more often a very badly corrupted imitation of the gospel is really little more to them than a vehicle for obtaining personal wealth and power and influence. And it has made some of them very, very wealthy. Based on Paul's defense of his own ministry here, And in similar passages in 1st and 2nd Corinthians, it's very clear that there were some in Corinth who were accusing Paul of having those kinds of self-serving motives in his proclamation of the gospel and in his exhortation of the churches throughout the Roman Empire. How Paul responds to those accusations in these five verses may come as a surprise to some of us. At first glance, it may not strike us as uh, the kind of humble and teachable response that a Christian is supposed to have to criticism. (laughs) But Paul's response is actually an exceedingly valuable lesson for every single one of us. 
God requires that His servants be trustworthy inside and outside. But He commands us, He commands us to leave the assessment of the hearts of man to Him. At the heart of Paul's teaching and exhortation in these, in these verses is the direct command in the last verse, verse 5. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time. When God says do not go on doing something, what He means is stop doing it. He says, therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and will disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. The judgment, the coming judgment that Paul is talking about here is not the judgment that will determine who is qualified to dwell in God's kingdom forever and who isn't. We who trust only in the perfect person and completed work of Christ on the cross to make us perfectly righteous in the eyes of of our holy God have no cause ever to be concerned about our standing in the eyes of God. We have no cause ever to be concerned about our qualification for heaven. We are not qualified for heaven. Jesus is. Now let me say the last, that last sentence before that one more time. So, so I want to make sure you hear what I'm saying. We who trust only in the perfect person and completed work of Jesus Christ at the cross to make us perfectly righteous in the eyes of our perfectly holy God have no cause ever to be concerned about our standing in the eyes of God or about our qualification for heaven. That's settled. In John 5.24, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My words and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but is already crossed over out of death into life. It's done. Romans 8.1, Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus. It's done. God intends for His children who are counting on the perfect sacrifice and and perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ alone, He intends for His children to know and to count on that promise. Because, beloved, without certainty there is no gratitude, and without gratitude there is no holiness. You and I who have been justified, declared righteous in the eyes of God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, will never have to give account of our qualification to live with God in His kingdom forever. Jesus is our qualification now and always. His blood poured out at the cross in place of ours is the one and only sufficient sacrifice to pay our sin debt to God. And His righteousness with which God has clothed us is the only righteousness that will ever qualify us for heaven. When I've been in heaven 10,000 years, it will still be the righteousness of Christ and only the righteousness of Christ that qualifies me to be there. That's all I need. You know how many works of righteousness Paul says in Romans 5 that it took for all of us to be justified? One. It took one sin to condemn us all, and it took one act of righteousness 
to justify all who trust in Jesus. The coming judgment of every redeemed child of God that Paul is talking about here in 1 Corinthians 4 is the Bema seat judgment of Christ, the judgment of His redeemed saints, at which Christ alone will assess both the deeds and the hearts of every one of His children. And He will render praise and reward accordingly to each of His children. By the way, praise and reward that every single one of us will recognize as perfectly just and right. None of us is going to be arguing with Christ on that day. It's not going to happen. In his forceful and crystal clear command here in verse 5, Paul makes it as clear as words can make it that until that judgment comes, you and I are to stop passing judgment on one another's hearts. What God authorizes you and me to actually judge is behaviors. Part of our God-given assignment as members of the body of Christ is to lovingly and humbly, humbly confront known sin in our brothers and sisters. Paul does quite a lot of that in this letter. But not sin that we can't see. Let me ask this. Among human beings, whose motives and intentions are you most able to know? Somebody else's or yours? Yours. Paul answered that question in chapter 2 when he said in verse 11, For who among man knows the, knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man who is in him? And then he says, Even so the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. So why is it then, why is it that so many Christians are so quick to judge what's going on in the heart of another Christian? What does Paul have to say about that all too common practice? Well, he just told us in verse 2 that God requires His servants to be trustworthy, even in their hearts. But look carefully at what he says next. It might surprise you. In the first part of verse 3, he says, But to me, it is a very small thing that I should be examined by you or by any human court. Is he saying that he's special? Is he saying that his apostolic calling exempts him from accountability to the judgment that other people render regarding what's in his heart? No. Because he then applies the same thing to every Christian. He's saying that men cannot know the hearts of other men. And more to the point, in this context, he's pointing out that one Christian cannot see into the heart of another Christian. He's saying that whatever any of us concludes about the innermost thoughts and intentions of another brother or sister might or might not be correct. And we don't get to know which it is. Until Jesus comes. Paul doesn't say here that the judgment of others regarding what's in his heart is of no concern to him. He says it is a very small thing that I should be examined by you or by any human court. I try to make it my habit, personally, to prayerfully consider every criticism that anyone makes of me. 
but it is not the judgments of men to which I will answer. It is the judgment of the one who alone truly knows my heart. And that matters. I got to tell you that when I was a young believer and I came upon this passage, it, it dramatically transformed my barometer for knowing what I needed to know about me. It, it changed that barometer from being what other people declared about me to being what God declares about me. And we'll get to that a little bit, a little bit more later. God intends for you and me to know very clearly that we are highly, highly unreliable when it comes to judging other people's hearts. In fact, we're so bad at it that He commands us here in verse 5 to just stop doing it. He commands us to wait until the One comes who will judge the heart of every child of God with perfect accuracy and righteousness. Again, he says, wait until the Lord comes who will bring to light, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and will disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God, not from you and me, but from God. Is there anything unclear about that command? Beloved, we need to take that command as it's given and not kill it by the death of a thousand qualifications. Yes, you can find examples in the New Testament and the Old in which God miraculously gave specific knowledge about what was going on in somebody through one of His instruments. One that I think of is, is the passage on Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, Peter knew that they were lying. Well, God gave him that knowledge. And by the way, that was actually a God told them what their behavior was. They had held back a portion of what they were trying to act like they had given to the Lord. But if you make that anything like normative, then you're going to miss the power of this passage. And that's why I say don't kill this by the death of a thousand qualifications. This is about how we as Christians must live day by day and what we need to know about what we don't no. Okay? And this passage is not the only place that Paul makes this point. In Romans 14, Paul's addressing the problem of Christians judging the hearts of other Christians based on something as external as what they eat and drink. We have our own versions of that today. In verse 4 of that passage, he says, Who are you to judge the servant of another? Isn't that a great question? To his own master, he stands or falls, and get this, stand he will, for the Lord is able to make him stand. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one of us dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that He might be Lord of both the dead and the living. And then He says, but you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? 
For we shall all stand before the judgment seat, the Bema seat of God. As it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me and every tongue will give praise to God. So then each one of us will give account of himself to God. Therefore, here it is again, let us not judge one another anymore. And when God says, don't do that anymore, he means stop doing it. But rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. And then Paul commands us to voluntarily limit our liberty in Christ with love for our brothers and sisters. Beloved, our misplaced trust in our ability to see things in the hearts of our fellow saints that they're either not seeing or choosing to ignore, that misplaced trust in ourselves violates godly love and it wreaks havoc on the unity of the body of Christ. By the habit of our old nature, we're all very proficient at this destructive error. We're really good at it. And we make it sound so holy when we do it. We observe some particular thing in a brother's or sister's words or actions that raises our eyebrows. And then, and then we take that one thing in isolation from everything else we've ever known about that person and we use it as a blast-off point to leap to groundless conclusions about what's going on in that person's heart. So one Christian who's heavily involved in ministering to downtrodden immigrants many of whom no doubt are in this country illegally, reads a Facebook post in which his brother, whom he's known for years, insists that our nation's immigration policies and laws need to be vigorously enforced. And so, immediately that first saint concludes that his brother must therefore have no godly concern for the eternal souls of illegal immigrants. But how can he claim to know that about his brother? It's actually a really silly conclusion. There are men in this body who believe very firmly in the rule of law and who spend much of their time ministering to people in jails. Another Christian Christian believes that she and every other Christian in this country are compelled to vote Republican because it's the party whose platform most closely reflects biblical values on critical matters of morality. But she learns that her sister and longtime friend in Christ voted Democrat. She immediately concludes that her sister simply doesn't care in her heart about such critical matters as the sanctity of life or about God's design for human sexuality. And so she plasters a condemning post on her sister's timeline and then she unfriends her. While proclaiming her own zeal for the things that matter to God, she is trashing the unity of the body of Christ that Jesus died to make one. The unity that God commands her to diligently guard every day of her life. Beloved, God does not tell us how we must vote. But He absolutely does tell us that He despises the barriers that we create between one another as His children. I changed some of the details in those examples, but they're based on things I actually witnessed. Please don't limit your thinking to those scenarios. 
That's what makes me reluctant to present scenarios. Paul is talking to all of us. We are all predisposed in the habit of our old nature to mess this up really badly. At the heart of all destructive prejudice is the arrogant belief that we are qualified and competent to draw condemning conclusions about things we cannot see in other people based on the things that we can see. But God says we are not able and we are not qualified to render judgments about the hearts of other people. So do we have the humility to agree with God? Or are we just going to keep doing things the way we've been doing them? One of the hardest things about being a Christian is doing life with other Christians who are just as under construction as we are when it comes to practical holiness. And we make it darn near impossible when we so easily rush to harsh judgment against our brothers and sisters. For many Christians, especially young Christians today, the relentless volley back and forth of harsh judgments by one Christian against another has led them to simply clock out of the life of the body of Christ. Sure, we can find plenty of biblical ammunition to convict them of turning their backs on the bride of Christ, but wouldn't God have us first consider how we are contributing to the widespread perception that the organized church is just too judgmental and hypocritical to be the nurturing community that God intends it to be. In 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4-7, through Paul says, Love is patient. Love is kind. Is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Does that describe the way you deal with your brothers and sisters in Christ? In 2 Corinthians 5, verses 16 and 17, Paul writes, Therefore, from now on we recognize no man according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know Him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. See, God commands you and me to look for the new things that He has created in our brothers and sisters, not the old things. The old things are still going to be there until we're finally removed from these unredeemed bodies. But according to God, it's the new things that display every believer's true identity. Even now. God intends for you and me to see one another as those whom He has recreated in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Ephesians 4.24, the truth that He says is in Christ. Alright, so what is it that frees you and me up to love our fellow saints with a 1 Corinthians 13 kind of love? Is it, is it that we're such great discerners of the intentions and motives of other people that we'll always know which ones we can trust and which ones we can't? No. 
What frees us up to love one another with the love of Christ while making no effort at all to protect ourselves is the rock-solid certainty that nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. The love that He has lavished upon us in our union with Christ. That's all you and I need to know about our well-being. That's all we ever need to know about our well-being. Are you quick to take into account a wrong suffered? Are you quick to find bad intentions in the hearts of other people toward you? Or are you like my beloved wife, slow even to notice when someone has treated you badly? And quick to forgive and seek reconciliation even when it's very clear to you that someone has ill will toward you? Which of those modes of dealing with other people does God intend His kids to display? He's very clear about it in passage after passage. God's love for us more than conquers every failure of love that we will ever suffer at the hands of men, including Christians. And the ones that will always hurt us the most are the ones that come at the hands of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Romans 8, 35-39, just such a marvelous passage. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Okay, so what is there that will ever undo the love of God for us in Christ? Nothing! And because that promise is true, we get to love one another with a Christ-like love. Don't worry about how men assess your heart. It's God's business, not theirs. God commands us to leave the assessing of hearts to Him, and He tells us that we're not qualified, we're not capable of judging the innermost thoughts and intentions and motives of other people, so we need to stop pretending that we are. Bearing that in mind, why is it that so many Christians are filled with fear of what their brothers and sisters are thinking about their hearts? You ever catch yourself reading between the lines of what one of your fellow saints says to you and drawing painful conclusions about how that person views what's going on inside of you? Even though what he says to you is actually encouraging. I've known far too many Christians who don't allow themselves to receive the love of God through their brothers and sisters because they're too busy reading ill will into everything that other people do and say to them. God's solution to that relationship-destroying way of thinking is stop putting yourself in God's seat. 
Stop reading between the lines. You're not qualified. Stop worrying about the thoughts and and intentions that you cannot know. Trust God, not you, to protect you. And then count on the fact that it's always going to be well with your soul because nothing can separate you from His love. This isn't platitudes, guys. This is as practical as practical gets. This is what enables us to live the Christian life day by day with joy and with peace and, and with the love of Christ flowing out from us toward other people without any regard to protecting ourselves. It's amazingly freeing when we, when we approach this the way God intends it. There's one other facet of this passage that's just as vitally important as the command to stop judging the hearts of other people, and that is the command to stop judging your own heart. When Paul says stop passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, he's not talking only about our judgment of others. He's also talking about our judgment of ourselves. Listen to verses 3 and 4 again. But to me it is a very small thing that I should be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, listen, in fact, I do not even examine myself. For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. See, Paul's he's simply agreeing with God that If he passes judgment on his own heart, he might be right and he might be wrong. Because God is the only one qualified to do that. You might be thinking, okay, wait a minute. In 2 Corinthians 13.5, Paul says, test yourself to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you failed the test? How can one passage tell us not to examine ourselves and another passage by the same writer, command us to examine ourselves. Well, it's not rocket science. Paul is talking about two very different things in those two passages. In 2 Corinthians 13, the examination he's talking about is the test of what you believe and teach. He uses the phrase, in the faith, several times in his letters to the churches, and he always means by that, in the body of doctrine that you have been taught by us. Not some other doctrine. One of many examples of this is seen in Paul's instruction to Titus in Titus chapter 1. He tells Titus to confront certain members of the local church in the city of Crete who were mixing unsound doctrine with Christian doctrine. He says to Titus, reprove them severely that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. That passage is not about introspecting in an effort to smoke out every evil motive in your own heart. What it is about is not adding to or replacing sound biblical teaching with unsound teaching. And that test has a very clear and objective standard of measure that's readily available to every believer. And that standard is the revealed Word of God. You see how different that is than the kind of obsession with self-scrutiny that some Christians feel compelled to engage in? Another passage that many Christians quickly go to when they hear anyone talk about self-examination is 1 Corinthians 11. Communion passage, the Lord's Supper. 
That passage is about how the church is to practice the Lord's table that we observe here every Sunday. How we partake of the Lord's table turns out to be a whole lot more important to God than many Christians think it is. Here's what Paul says about preparing ourselves to partake together of the bread and the cup. He says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in doing so, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. In other words, have died physically. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. And then this part's good. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. In that passage, the self-examination that Paul is talking about is an assessment of how we approach the Lord's table. And it's actually very practical. It's about the sacredness that we attach or don't attach to that observance. He's confronting the Corinthian saints about this because of how grievously they were trivializing that God-given observance. They were treating it as an opportunity for gluttony and drunkenness, an opportunity for self-indulgence at the expense of their brothers and sisters, instead of as a remembrance of the perfect sacrifice of Jesus in joyful anticipation of his return. Now, you and I don't have a problem with the gluttony and drunkenness part because of you know the size of the elements that we use. But my point is, he's talking about behaviors. Yes, the atti- there's an attitude behind those behaviors, but the measure of the failure of the Corinthians was that they were, they were coming to the Lord's table and they were, get, they were filling their stomachs and drinking themselves to drunkenness. And it's supposed to be sacred. We'll get into that passage much more deeply when we come to it later in this study, but for now... I'll just say start reading that passage at 1 Corinthians 1, uh, 11, 17 and go all the way to the end of the passage. You, you'll see what Paul's talking about. It's not, it's not hard. All right, so what are we supposed to do when it comes to the assessment of the motives of our own hearts? Aren't we supposed to care whether our hearts are right before God? The answer is Absolutely. But we absolutely must get the means to that end correct as God prescribes those means. The God-commanded means to that end is for you and me to look to Him, not to ourselves, to rightly assess and address what's going on in our innermost being. You cannot trust your own heart to rightly assess itself any more than you can trust your own heart to rightly assess the heart of another person. The assessment of the hidden things of the heart is God's business and not ours. In Philippians 2.13, Paul says, it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. It's God, not you. When it comes to the examination of our own hearts, 
King David had it exactly right in Psalm 139. He said, O Lord, You have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down. You are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, O Lord, You know it. You have enclosed me behind and before and You have laid Your hand upon me. And then he says, such knowledge of me is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. That last verse demands our attention. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. I cannot attain to it. David's saying he can't possibly know himself rightly as God knows him. He's agreeing with God that his own hearts, his own motives are beyond his ability to rightly know. Does anyone here think that applied to David, but it doesn't apply to you and me? So where does that leave us? How are we ever going to know and fix the things that aren't right in our own hearts? David's answer, God's answer, is very, very straightforward. And it's very simple. It's God's job and not ours. That means we have to look to Him to do the assessing and correcting of our hearts. That's our part of the assignment. Look to Him. And you know what that means? It means we pray. That's how David ends Psalm 139. Listen to this marvelous prayer that goes right to the heart of everything we've been talking about. He says, Lord, he says, you search me, O God, you search me and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. You assess me and you address what you find because I can't. The whole psalm, in the whole psalm, David's saying, I can't. You can. The unavoidable problem with deep self-reflection is that it takes your eyes off Christ and it puts your eyes on you. And beloved, that's not where your eyes belong. My brother Brady Pamplin kindly offered to make a name plaque for my desk with a favorite verse on it. and He fabricated it on a 3D printer. The verse I chose is Galatians 2.20. He said that's the longest verse that he ever had to make a plaque for. In that verse, Paul sets before you and me one of the most powerfully clarifying declarations in the whole Bible. This is how we're supposed to see ourselves. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh... I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered Himself up for me. Let me ask you, how much room is there in that verse? How much room is there in that verse for me to focus attention on myself? None. I have died. I have been crucified with Christ. There's nothing there to look at. The only thing about me in that declaration that I need to be concerned about is that. I have died. I've been crucified with Christ. The only me that now exists is the me that's defined by my union with Christ that the only way I can rightly think of myself is to think entirely of Christ. 
That's where our eyes must be and must remain, beloved, on Him. Just one more quick thing. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? How do we run that race? (laughs) Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. He caused it and He finishes it. Who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Beloved, let's stop putting our brothers and sisters under the damaged and clouded lens of our lousy judgment. And let's put our eyes where God commands us to put them. On Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Dear Father, You... You are the only righteous judge of men's hearts. Teach us to joyfully rest in that reality. It's a marvelous reality as we trust You, not us, to work daily in all of Your children to make us both will and work for Your good pleasure. We ask this in Jesus' precious name and for His glory. Amen.